This episode of Brio TV, the podcast, is brought to you by our friends at Hollywood Suite, showing the best films from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Find them at hollywoodsuite.ca. My name's Valerie Creighton, and I'm talking to Bill Brew today because he asked me to, and I'm a big fan of Bill's. And we've been on the phone at the CMF for eight, ten hours a day since I've been home at the ranch, working from home like everybody in the country since about March 12th. So happy to talk to you today, Bill. Valerie, I'm, I'm so pleased that you were able to make some time. Thank you very, very much. I realize it's basically the entire future of the Canadian television a business comes down to you and a ball of twine, I think, right now. And so <laughs> I, I can't imagine how busy you are, but thanks for your time. And, no problem. Uh, it, it's fun talking to you there. Uh, now, I know normally in a normal year, a normal week, you'd be on an airplane or you'd be in Ottawa or Montreal or Banff probably right now. Um, uh, you know, and so you've been able to spend some time at home working from home. How has that gone, other than having a phone glued to your head, I guess? Well, it's been really good. You know, we transitioned all of the CMS staff to work remotely on the 17th of March. And many of our staff had that capability. And we made sure we provided, you know, whatever equipment was required to those who did not. I did a report to the board uh, mid-April, I think it was, about what we had pushed out the door in that uh, say four to six week time frame, and I was astounded. I mean, I got a team of A type personalities who are all overachievers, you know. And we launched our regular program budget. We launched the guidelines for 2020-21. We launched the COVID process. We worked with our great people at the Department of Canadian Heritage to develop as much flexibility as possible for the industry with the emergency relief money. We redid a lot of the guidelines to gain as much flexibility as possible for the industry. And we launched a COVID hub. Uh, the team did it in under two weeks, and it has all of the federal programs, provincial programs, all the new health and safety stuff. It's on our website. It's an incredible resource for the whole country. So it's been good, Bill. I mean, for myself, you're right. The only thing really different is my body is very grateful. I haven't been on an airplane every third to fourth day, and I'm starting <laughs> to understand what it feels like to be a real human being again when you're in one time zone. So that's been the only change for me. Usually when I travel a lot, like we have a, on, a, a network system, no matter where I am, I can log right into the office. And I have a CMF home office in Saskatchewan. And whenever I am here, which up until now has been very rarely you know, we just log right in and it's almost like you're in the office. So I would say the transition for us has been incredibly smooth. And the, I'm just so proud of the team and what we've accomplished during this time. Well, I guess we'll, we'll take the silver linings where we can find them and not having to travel and fly so much must be good. But uh, give some folks some idea of the scope, really. I mean, Valerie, on any other year, you would be busy celebrating what is the 10th anniversary uh, of the yeah. Canada Media Fund. And I'm sure you had an agenda that was very different all planned for this year, right? Oh, we did for sure. And actually, Banff was supposed to be the big reveal and the big release and the big celebration. And, you know, we weren't able to do that. But we have created a, a very short little video that highlights the achievements. So we're just waiting to see 
how everything unfolds. But we did plan, this is the year where we do our cross-country 22 cities in 18 days consultation tour. And we're on the ground right from Iqaluit to Whitehorse to Charlottetown to Vancouver Island and everybody in between. And we certainly had a really fabulous um, program planned so that we could celebrate the content created by all of the creators and production community in each of those 22 centers as we went across the country in celebration of what they created over the last 10 years. So we haven't canceled that yet. I'm just loath to cancel it until we really see how things will unfold later in the fall. If we can't be physically on the ground, then we're going to find another way to do it, just like everybody has been adapting quite well. But yes, I miss being in Banff. It's one of the highlights of the year for us at the CMF, and we get to see everybody internationally and domestically, and, and it's, um, it's yeah, we'll be back, that's for sure. It'll be back next year. I don't know if you had a chance to peek in on any of these sessions for Banff Day that they were virtual and remote, and yep. did you see any? You did see some of that? I did, I thought, yep. You know, Valerie, I thought it worked pretty well. I thought that one advantage, it's so beautiful in Banff that, you know, um, you're looking out at this gorgeous, uh, the Rockies and the Evergreens and this amazing hotel. Um, actually doing it virtually, you may be less inclined to be a tourist to just focus on these five people on screen who are having yeah. a very intellectual conversation about some serious business. Is that how you found it? Yeah, that's how I found it too. I listened to our minister this morning and then I uh, I followed the industry leaders panel as, as much as I could. And I've kind of just been ducking in and out depending on other pressures and priorities. But I think it's worked extremely well too. I did watch segments of the awards last night because we <laughs> uh, hosted the Canadian Award of Distinction. And right. I thought they, you know, it worked given what everybody was up against. I thought the Banff team did a tremendous job pulling this all together and offering yeah. a very robust program. And I think you're right. You focus a little harder on the, on the discussion for sure. And you yeah. haven't got, you know, several hundred people in the room with you to distract you either so I think <laughs> that's right that's true yeah yeah um and i know you have your own many conversations with minister uh Gibault, uh about the the current uh, pandemic and situation everything else you've been tasked to uh, deal with uh what did you think of his uh, comments at banff did anything jump out did was there anything that you hadn't anticipated no i thought they were you know pretty much like he's in a tough position because a lot of the questions were about, you know, the new legislation and the revitalization of the Broadcasting Act, which he can't, in fairness, really answer. You can't really talk about the content of a bill publicly right. until the bill is tabled. So I thought I was really happy to hear him mention that the government is looking at something around the insurance issue, because we know that that is the number one barrier to production coming you know, back, along with, obviously, the cost for the new health and safety requirements. But if we can't get the insurance piece resolved, it's going to be very tough for a lot, you know, producers and broadcasters in Canada just are not in a position to take that kind of risk. So I was happy to hear him mention that. It's clearly on the radar of government, even if they don't have a precise answer yet. And also mm -hmm. happy that, you know, he spoke about COVID is the issue right now. Everybody's focused on it. You can't table a bill in the house that isn't COVID related, but he did talk about the fall and reemerging and getting back to some of that business. And I think that's very important for the whole sector to not lose track of some of those important fundamental policy issues that that report recommended. Yeah. And then that's, you know, we would need to do uh, several podcasts to even scratch the surface of how complex all of that is in yeah. that. 
you know, the Broadcast Act to me is, I remember being, you know, a, a, a student in university studying the Broadcast Act of the 50s and then the 1979-80. And it just seems like the Magna Carta, that this is something that in a world where that changes, it's almost like water, the, the broadcasting the landscape every week and month, it's a whole other animal. How do you possibly put it down on paper that's relevant to issues uh, today when things are changing so fast? Um, well, or, yeah, I think or, the, or, the challenge is it should really be a driving policy document. I don't think you can possibly encompass the the rapid pace of change that happens in, in this industry. And, you know, the Broadcasting Act has some fundamental principles that are critical, I think, for the country of Canada. And I, I think they're there. They're embedded in the Act. And I think, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm not involved in that process, but I'm, my assumption is that, you know, they will stay at a very high policy directive level. And then they have agencies and institutions like the CRTC, like all of us in the cultural sector, that will implement the outcome of that, which is where I think the flexibility is really required. I mean, the CMF itself is still what I call restricted, but I think we just need to be a little more flexible on a number of fronts to actually respond to, as you say, the rapid pace of change, which, you know, happens every day almost. And when you're given too much of a, of a restrictive regime in which to implement policy directive of the country, it's tough to really respond to what's happening in the industry and, in fact, the market, both domestically and internationally. So my hope is that once they've concluded the process of getting the bill tabled, that will kind of waterfall down into all of the federal agencies and organizations like the CMF, because we're not a crown. We're a nonprofit at law, public private partnership with government and the big BDUs in the country, and that we'll have a lot more flexibility around the programming that we need to do. You know, my belief is the sector has been very successful for the most part. It's created jobs. It's had a huge impact on the GDP of the country. It's helped us build our international reputation. And the creativity of Canada is, you know, sitting right on the top of this brick structure that we built for, if you go back to the NFB over 80 <laughs> years in the country, and it's ready to fly. So I think it's really a question of what are the right tools and the appropriate tools to make sure compelling creative content gets made in Canada and, you know, gets, is able to be distributed and marketed around the world. And I think the tools and the toolkit has to change, but the general policy remains the same, which is, you know, about making sure Canadian stories and ideas and innovation get to Canadians. Absolutely. And, and in that end, um, talk a little bit about your efforts right now, the emergency efforts to get funding to producers uh, and, and uh, studios who have been hit hardest by the pandemic. I know the ministry basically tasked the CMF and I guess t Telefilm as well, to distribute millions of dollars. Um, what is the scope of that and, and are, what point are you at in, in helping those people right now? Well, it's a very large scope. And yes, you're right. In phase one, there was, I think it was 127 million between Telefilm and the CMF. Telefilm had 27 million to address emergency issues, primarily in the feature film community. And CMF had 88.8 .8 for television and digital media. And there were some very clear parameters around that money. We view this, this is not CMF's money. It's the government's money that we've been asked to provide to the industry. So our objectives were 
to get it out the door as fast as possible to make the application process as simple as possible while respecting the directives from government, which were primarily a few things. You know, you had to be a legitimate business, Canadian business under the Investment Canada Act. You had to at least declare that you intended to continue in business and contributing to the sector and that you weren't bankrupt. You had to declare um, the fact that if you had applied for other government programs like CERB and Qs, that that's fine. You could still apply to this fund, but you just had to demonstrate that the money wasn't being used for the same costs. So, for example, if through the wage subsidy, a company applied for support for their permanent employees, that's fine. And then they could apply to the emergency fund for their freelance or contract workers. That's not a duplication of the federal resources. It's actually just both parts that keep the company going. And there was a real focus on business continuity and what those costs might be in order to ensure the industry gets back up and running again. So very simple parameters, but clear. So we had a list of about as you may know, Bill, we finance content on a project-by-project basis. Right. That's not how the directive came to us. It was directed to go to companies. So we rolled up all of the single-purpose production into parent companies. We had about a 1,000 parent companies on the list. And just we looked at, we knew we didn't have enough money. We could only provide them 25% of what we had invested in those companies or provided to those companies over the last past three years. So we couldn't give them everything that we invested, obviously. And with the 88 million, you know, we had to make that amount work within the 25% cap. So we looked at those parent companies and we divided them into, um, you know, those companies that had produced or had received more than 10 million from the CMFs, the five to 10 and then the below five. And we allocated the money according to that list. The staff were fantastic. I mean, people just stepped up we had it opened on a Wednesday morning, I believe, and we had 270 applications in overnight, and then it trickled down a bit. And I think we're right at the end. That closed on the 12th of June. We're just finalizing what's come in the door. We will have a little bit of money left over from that program, which which will go into phase two, is my understanding. But I've been so humbled and proud. We've received so many emails from the industry just thanking us for the efficiency and the speed. And this has helped companies keep people employed and keep the lights on and keep the door open until we get to, you know, a recovery phase, which will be later in the fall. Of course, the primary objectives right now are getting production up and running again. That's, you know, the insurance and the health and safety costs are the two things occupying the industry. So that's where we are with phase one. Uh, I think of the... Oh, don't quote me on these numbers, but over of the all the projects that came in, we've got 85 or 90% of the money out the door. So we're wow. just tying up the loose ends this week. And then we'll know what phase two will reveal a little later on. But primarily, those will be companies that, that miss the three-year window, are still active producing Canadian companies that make an impact on the country that you know are eligible for the tax credit, but they may not be entirely 10 out of 10. So we'll be looking at that. And what I understand too... Sorry, I want to add one more thing. And there's some real pressures in our interactive digital community as well that we're going to try to address in phase two. Because some of these folks would have been just ready or just starting uh, production, maybe just shooting a pilot or uh, what have you. And then everything was shut down immediately, wasn't it? So a lot of folks were left stranded uh, and certainly they have insurance costs and all these others. We're hearing now that... um, 
you know, uh, it, when things resume, hopefully soon, um, when studios, people are back on a set, say Murdoch Mysteries is going to, they're going to start shooting again. I'm not sure if they're just going to shoot Murdoch in a jail cell for an hour. You know, <laughs> they're going to have to write stories, maybe where there's one person in a room more, but, um, that the costs involved with the startup, because they're going to have to be safe sets, they're going to have to have, uh, masks and, and, you know, shields perhaps that, uh, people will be putting on their own makeup. But, uh, in order to cover the cost of maybe modifying these sets, that's money that wasn't ever anticipated. And so shows could cost more than they did in seasons past. And this is a shortfall that some producers are worried about. Have you been hearing from the production community or studios specifically about these kinds of costs? Oh, of course, like for three months, because everybody's <laughs> pretty clear that, you know, it's not going to be production like it was. Mm-hmm. And I think the question is, where does that money come from? You know, the broadcast sector is under a lot of pressure. Many of our big dramas are broadcast producer partnerships, and they're not going to be able to fill that void. Some right. of the money that, you know, when we looked at the definition of what business continuity was in the phase one emergency relief fund, certainly costs for some costs for health, the anticipated health, health and safety would be eligible. But it's like, Bill, everybody's, you know, really trying to gear up and get ready for the party. And we're all dressed to go to the party, but nobody really knows when this party is going to start. So it's a very difficult thing to cope with. And, and we know that, you know, those costs were not anticipated. I know in, you know, we had a, a company, you know, give us an estimate of four big drama series that they're doing the additional costs for those four series just for health and safety will be around two and a half million dollars. Wow. So clearly the impact is anywhere from 500 to 8,000, 800,000 per project, depending on, you know, what size the project is. Now, in some of the documentaries or other genres that we finance, the cost maybe wouldn't be that high because there are less people. You know, if you're doing a dog, right. you don't have 300 people involved. And depending, it's totally dependent on the type of content and the project and the nature of what people are shooting as to what the magnitude of the cost will be. But they mm. certainly, you know, there'll have to be nurses on set. There's a whole, it's a whole different business going forward from here. There's no doubt about that. And the nature of the stories, I, I think, will have to change, too. People must be writing around COVID in some ways just because uh, for financial reasons uh, as any other. Um, so it will be a challenge. Um, my goodness, Valerie, so much here now. If you don't mind, we should take a little short break here. Then we come back. Sure. I have a few other questions. Okay, no problem. You don't have to be a film student to know that the Oscar winner for Best Picture of 1939 was Gone with the Wind. Even if you don't give a damn about awards, you know that film was the king of the Oscar winners. But what was named Best Picture in 2004? Was it Lost in Translation with Bill Murray? Should have been. No, instead it was Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, a film that maybe, maybe should have won Best Really, Really, Really Long Film Award. Bill Murray didn't even win for Best Actor. He was robbed by Sean Penn, who won that year for Mystic River or Mystic Pizza, one of those two. Anyway, it should never have happened. Murray should have won Best Costume Award just for turning his T-shirt inside out in Lost in Translation. But no, that went to the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. They just took the costumes from Gladiator and added fur to them. I'm still bitter. Anyway, 
Here's the good news. The folks at Hollywood Suite are showing award-winning films every night all summer long. That's right. 92 nights of unforgettable films on all four of their channels. You'll see Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Cinematographer, and not just Oscar winners, BAFTA winners. You know, BAFTA winners like, like Lost in Translation with Bill Murray. So take that, Oscar fools. Anyway, Hollywood Suite, the best films of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Find them all summer long at hollywoodsuite.ca. Um, now, we were talking, talking of course, with uh, Valerie Crichton. She's the president and CEO of the Canada Media Fund. This is the fund that finances, uh, you know, helps uh, write the costs for everything you watch on Canadian television, um, most shows anyway, many of the popular ones for sure. And uh, normal year, that's a very, very busy job. This year, it's just crazy. Um, and there's a producer just calling me now. I'm going to See if I can turn my phone off so we can't hear this. <laughs> Sorry about that, Valerie. Okay, um, no problem. Anyway, um, now uh, we were talking about the costs associated with, with coming back to work and the extra care uh, taken to make these things safe. What is? Do you have any kind of idea? Do you have a crystal ball? Will we see uh, Canadian productions like uh, in the fall or in January? Uh, is there an indication when the season could start? Well, Bill, I don't think anybody can really answer that question with any intelligence. You know, it's just such a crapshoot. Production is opening up in various places across the country. We know Manitoba was early out of the gate with their protocols, and they've resumed some production. Uh, BC is looking at it as well, obviously. So I think it's totally dependent on who's doing the production. You know, if it's a large U.S. studio some of them have, uh, in one of the panels at Banff today, some will be covering some of the insurance costs. Those are the big obstacles, insurance and the health and safety. So I think everybody out there who's doing production, whether you're big or small, is trying to assess what is the nature of doing this going forward? What is the cost implication? And where's the money going to come from? Because obviously, everybody's really interested in making sure that the health and safety of all workers, both talent and below and above the line and behind and in front of the camera that people are safe that they're in environments where they're safe and i've heard i heard last night from a producer that a, a production partner he had in germany is doing a show they're shooting it in poland and they're taking they've really four-walled bought out an entire hotel so everybody in the hotel will be part of the film crew uh, people making the food, all that stuff will be part of the film production. And they're oh, busing wow. back and forth, you know, from set on the same bus so that they contain the exposure and access. Now, you know, if you're shooting and having to be inside a hotel or on a set for three months, who knows how that's going to go for people. But it is, you know, it's it's the reality is things are not going to be back to normal. And when is a good question. I've heard everything from, you know, start up in July to start up in November, to start up early next year. The interesting thing is, you know, we have our regular program that we manage on top of what COVID has added to our plate. And our, our statistics as of today's date on the regular take-up of our program are pretty, pretty comparable with last year. I expected them to be much lower but they're actually not bad. So I think, again, everybody's trying to get ready to go. 
But the question is, when can we go? And the two obstacles are insurance and the health and safety issues. For sure. It's, you know, I've had the great fortune to travel coast to coast and be on sets and locations to see how robust the industry is in Canada. It's truly remarkable. All the white trucks, you'll see them in Halifax and you'll see them in uh, Saskatchewan, that beautiful studio you have there. Uh, certainly Manitoba, very robust and aggressive in terms of incentives. Uh, so that's all part of this story, isn't it? Uh, it's each and every province uh, opening the doors and each of them will have their own set of rules and guidelines. That yeah. must make it more complicated though, Valerie. Would it, is that going to slow things down or is it just everybody trying to figure this out? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty basic what people know they need to do. It's the social distancing piece. It's, you know, as you say, the hair, uh, makeup, wardrobe, ca- uh, act- activities in the production are, and craft services, of course, are probably the most severely affected. I, I don't know. The industry is pretty resilient. And I think, you know, province to province, there may be some slight differences, but everybody knows what the basic approach needs to be. There'll have to be masks. There'll have, there's issues around, you know, camera and how many camera and equipment and people. And I know the unions and guilds are involved in that. So generally speaking, and, you know, our industry is pretty creative, pretty resilient. And I think people out there will do their very best to try to trigger production again, you know, with all of these things taken into consideration. It's going to be complex as an environment writ large, no matter where you're shooting and how you're going about it. I don't think there's any question about that for sure. But I think safety is safety at the end of the day. And it isn't just our industry that's affected by those, those requirements either. It's, you know, universal across the country for all industries. Of course. And, and it's all around the world. You know, uh, some of the solutions to this shortfall in, in monies, it's been suggested more co-productions. And I know you've been involved. There's many treaties, 56 or I don't know how many now with countries all around the world. Of course, this is a pandemic that's worldwide. Um, and so that complicates it too. It's not just an easy reach to, well, we'll go shoot, shoot in Germany. It's safe there. Uh, there's, there's restrictions will be encountered many places, but uh, do you think that that is part of the solution to the shortfall? More in uh, worldwide uh, international co-production. Um, you know, I I think co-production has always been, at least from our perspective, a very high priority. You know, it's hard to make content, and money's hard to come by just about everywhere. And I think the advantage of co-production is you bring, you know, resources from two countries to the two or more countries to the table. You bring talent and skill and expertise. And while they can be complicated to manage, there's also a lot of benefits to co-production. And, you know, the advantages in the Canadian system are the the foreign co-producer is treated as if a Canadian when it comes to all the rules and regulations and programs in Canada. And I guess it remains to be seen how production starts to resume and monitoring will be really critical. And then, you know, we'll go from there. And I imagine there's some shows like this hour is 22 minutes. They could probably do what Saturday Night Live is doing is remote shows with cast members at home. I mean, there may be ways like that if they wanted to, if they need to. Yeah, some types of genres can certainly do that. And, and we've heard from the Quebec market that, you know, variety and performing arts, they feel, is a genre that could be managed, not necessarily quite like that, but is a little less expensive to produce than a big drama. Some of those types of shows 
you know, we may find get into production a little earlier. Again, you know, the people producing them have to make that call. <clears throat> Let's talk about a, a, a happier story, a success story. One you were very involved with is the launch of the uh, Canadian uh, shows from out of the vault onto YouTube on uh, Encore Plus. Uh, very successful. Millions of people have watched shows there. Um, you can go and, and see a lot of things, uh, do South or Ready or Not or Quebec shows, many, many different things. Um, it, it's actually the timing for this is so perfect now because I think people are seeking comfort food and television and having a place to see your favorites from when, you know, maybe you were in high school or college. Uh, this is actually a great solution, isn't it? Well, it's funny, you know, it was uh, Encore Plus was kind of a little if you build it, they will come project. And even at its launch, it had a, a higher response from the public than we had anticipated. But it really has quadrupled, I think, by now. We're just over 20 million views, I believe. And our wow. subscriber base is growing every single month. And I think, you know, partly you're right. It's first of all, people are stuck at home. And, you know, people are on Netflix, people are on every streaming service that there is for sure. But when you can find something that resonates with you, you know, as you were growing up or as you were raising your kids, I think there's been a tremendous response to that. And what's been very interesting with Encore, there's been some things come out of the vault that have highlighted Canadian talent. There was a recent project that Martha Henry did, and she was delighted, you know, to do an interview from her home we had nice. the Wayne and Schuster family guys when we launched uh, some of the content from the Wayne and Schuster shows, which really drove political satire in this country for many, many years. I remember those well when I was growing up and the family me, were me, so me delighted, too. you know? Yeah. yeah. And we had a big event in Stratford where the sons attended and celebrated the fact that some of that content at least was now available. Some of those shows have been brought back to life. Some, because we do, once it's digitized, we provide a digitized copy to the rights holder. So they, some sales have been made of that content from around the world. So I think it's, wow. uh, it's a little out of the mandate of the CMF, but it was a, a project we started with Telefilm and other partners. And I think it's, you know, it's been very interesting to see the response to it for sure. And I, I, I hope we can continue to support it, you know, and audiences will continue to grow now they've had a taste of it after everybody's kind of outside of their home environment yeah. again. Well, and I think we talked a few months ago, you said viewership literally spiked in uh, April or maybe, yeah, maybe far back as March. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think and as now the Wayne and Schuster you mentioned, and it is good for people to have a window on life before SCTV, that there was a comedy yeah. tradition back then. Um, yeah. Is there now, is the Beachcombers part of this collection yet? Oh, I can't tell you that off the top of my head. I know we were working on it, but I'm not sure if we got it or not. I'd have to check on that for you, Bill. All or, right. Well, you know, and people can jump on and look for it. It might be there. It might not. I can't guarantee it. But I know it, the, the conversation was being held for sure. There's there's a lot of great stuff, and it's on a YouTube channel, Encore Plus. Uh, just uh, dial that in. You'll come right to it. Um, yeah, and it's now, free. It, it is absolutely free. Don't have to subscribe to anything. Now, uh, here's a question out just from um, uh, out of the blue. Uh, you're a rancher. You have a ranch in Saskatchewan. Uh, you ride horses every day, I presume, all the time. No, no, I don't actually ride. I'm more my role here. I mean, I do ride, but I'm not a very confident rider. I got... 
uh, you know, I had a Shetland pony when I was very young and they're kind of stubborn, miserable animals. And I didn't have the greatest experiences with that horse, but I've a breeding program here for American quarter horses and American paint horses that we've been at for about 17 years now. Wow, so it's the, bre- the breeding and the foaling. That's my interest, but uh, yeah, that's, that's part of my life too. And it's fascinating to me, just your perspective on television, this industry, a lot of it is discussions in Toronto, sometimes Ottawa, you know, other companies, but, you know, your view from the ranch, I think, what is it that gives you perhaps a perspective that is very helpful in your job? Well, you know, it's funny. When I was interviewed for the job, I was headhunted for the job when it was the Canadian Television Fund. And I was actually asked that question is, you know, how is the ranch going to help you be the CEO of the Canadian Television Fund? And all the big (laughs) executives, very high profile people, the biggest in our industry were around that interview table. And I said, well, here's what I'll tell you. Um, I'll give you an example of when I was at SAS Film in Saskatchewan. And we were having a big struggle in those days because we're an isolated province with a small production community. And, you know, we had to join with other provinces and telefilm if we were really going to make our mark as a country. So I was out in the pasture one day taking down a barbed wire fence. And it just occurred to me that if we, this was right when the soundstage was being built, if we looked at our investment programs, our equity programs, the locations that Saskatchewan has to offer, we just convinced government to put the tax credit in place in those days and the soundstage was being built, that we would have a one-stop shop uh, under the umbrella of SAS Film that we could market to the world. And lo and behold, you know, uh, shortly after that, our production increased from, I think we were around 5 million to 25 million in the soundstage. I just can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. But what I said was, when you're in your office in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver or wherever, you know, Paris, London, wherever, you are bombarded by people at your door, by phone calls, by email, and your brain doesn't have a chance to think deeply, creatively in a different way other than the creativity you have to bring to your hourly, daily job. Mm -hmm. So when you're out in nature and there's nothing around you, your brain goes to a different place. And I think you release a lot of the pressure of what these jobs are about daily and something else can come in to replace that. It's why people want to be in nature. It's why people want to go to the cottage. It's why people want to go to the lake or climb mountains or canoe the church hill or whatever, mm-hmm. because it releases something in us. I always used to say, you know, living in Saskatchewan, we had the highest percentage uh, of Governor General Award winners in literature per capita when I was running the Saskatchewan Arts Board. Wow. And that's, I think, because you you have the opportunity here. Like, I'm looking out across the land. I see two or three horses in one pasture and a few in the other. I see nothing for miles. Every morning, if I'm, you know, up and going, I try to get going by 6 or 6.30 so I can go out to the pasture and walk it it's you know i can walk for miles without seeing anybody and we've got nine foals on the ground and it first of all it grounds you i think that's what being a prairie girl has always done for me it's made me keep my feet on the ground and you come at things from a very practical perspective i think when you when you have the privilege and it is a privilege and believe me 
I give thanks for the privilege of walking on this land every single day because I have so many of my fabulous staff have been, you know, locked up in their apartments in Toronto and, and people at home with little kids and there's no school. And I am just so grateful that I have the space and the latitude and you get more energy from it. You get, it's a different way of thinking. It's a freedom in your brain and then good ideas can come your way. So that's what it's done for me. And I saw something on uh, Facebook when this all started. I think it was Facebook or one of the social media platforms. And it was a shot of the prairie, that long road, you know, that goes into the horizon for miles. And it said, Saskatchewan, natural isolation since 1928. <laughs> <laughs> that's and it's true. Like we, you yeah. know, the province has been very, very low in cases, but especially I'm in the south. Mm. Um, you know, there's some in Regina, obviously, but we've had none, you know, in this area, at least that have been reported. And people are following all the protocols and, you know, same thing as everywhere else, you know, distancing and masks and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, I, I feel very, very, very privileged, Bill, and very grateful to be able to work from here to the extent we're working and be in a place like this. No kidding. Well, I can't think of a better, um, you know, background for being a, a player in the Canadian television industry than knowing how to take down a barbed wire fence. Yeah, <laughs> I had a call one day from a producer in L.A. in Hollywood, and he said, what are you doing, Valerie? I said, well, I'm up to my ankles and shit trying to get rid of this post. And at that time, I had no tractor and no equipment. I had a, a chain and a jack gall, and I was pulling the post out by hand. And I said, like, fuck, I'm just up to my ankles and shit here. And he said, yeah, it sounds a bit like the, the television business. I said, yeah, pretty much. It's just a slightly <laughs> different take on it. So. That's hilarious. Uh, of course, now you're a prairie girl with an Order of Canada. Uh, I am. Award. I am, yeah. indeed. Congratulations yeah, on that. Thank what was you. that? What was that like? Oh, it was shocking. In fact, <laughs> I, um, I had been asked by uh, an individual to write a letter of support for someone else. And somehow it, I, I just didn't get to it. Like it was busy. It slipped my mind. And then I got a call from the governor general's office. I was actually in, in England. We were at uh, C21, I think when that happened. Wow. And I thought the call was about, look, are you doing this letter or not? You know, cause we're coming down to the wire to make the selection. So I was feeling, Oh my God, like how am I going to get this done? And now I have to do this. And I'm in meetings all day tomorrow. So she called and she said, you know, she had the honor to tell me I'd been awarded the Order of Canada. And I said, are you sure? <laughs> it was just, I was so, you know, thinking about something else. And I was, was really humbled. And, and really, it's just, it's, I don't know how to explain it, Bill. It's, uh, it's such an emotional thing because it's just, you know, it, it, it came out of the blue, first of all. And it just, it hit me pretty hard. I, I'm a pretty tough old broad, but I'll tell you, it hit me pretty hard when when she said that. And then um, I said, well, I, I just don't know what to say. And she said, well, you have to say one thing. I need to technically ask you, you know, are you willing to accept this? And I said, fuck yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that wasn't a problem. Yeah, well, listen, so well-deserved. Uh, and uh, congratulations on that and everything you're accomplishing now. You deserve any medal coming your way for just fighting through this COVID thing and, and really helping an awful lot of people in this industry, Valerie. So it was a pleasure to talk to you. I, I'm, thank you so much for taking the time and good luck in the next uh, few months and the next while until you're able to really wave that uh, 10th anniversary flag for the CMF. Yeah. Well, same to you. Stay safe. And my philosophy is if you're in doubt, drink whiskey. <laughs> uh, I'll drink to that. <laughs> 